Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We recently held a regional course here in Birmingham, Alabama on the ones and twos of the Old Testament or the historical books, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. That was filmed and was released last week on our app as a video course. And in this episode, we have the first half or so of the first lecture from that course. Here, Peter Lighthart discusses spiritual reading, reading like Jesus, and the importance of having models and mentors in how we look at the Bible. If you'd like to listen to the rest of this course, you can find that there on the Theopolis app, and there's a link down there in the show notes for you to check that out. We are in the midst of fundraising season right now at Theopolis, and if you would like to support our work, there's a link down there in the show notes to give. As of this recording right now, we are trying to raise another ten dollars to $15,000 before the end of June, so we ask for you to donate to our work and become a partner with us as we launch into our second decade as an organization. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is Peter Lightheart discussing spiritual reading and reading like Jesus. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you are God who has spoken to us uh, and and that in your speaking, you've revealed yourself and brought us into communion with you. Uh, We thank you that you, the God who created the ear, does hear. You hear our prayers, you hear our praises, you respond. Father, we pray that you would respond to our prayers. We ask you to guide us through this weekend, help us to... um, understand your word more deeply and fully, uh, to understand more of Jesus Christ and the salvation that you've achieved in him uh, as we look at the history of the Davidic monarchy. We pray that you guide and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 This uh, set of lectures is on the first and seconds of the Old Testament. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and first and second Chronicles. Uh, the focus will be on the first two of those, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Uh, I'll look at Chronicles some tomorrow, but not in as much depth as I'm going to with Samuel and Kings. Uh, these are first and seconds, but I'll, I'll repeat this a number of times, I'm sure. Each one of those is a single book. First and Second Samuel is divided into two books only because, uh, apparently, only because the, the uh, scrolls were too large to put an entire, the entire book on one scroll became unwieldy, uh, and so it's divided into two books. But it's, it is one narrative. It's structurally one book. It's thematically one book. Kings is one book. And you can, Kings is the one that you can tell most clearly because the, whoever decided to break it where it is just decided very badly. It's right in the middle of somebody's reign, uh, and uh, you break right in the middle, basically, of a narrative. Uh, and there's not a, not, a, not a good seam at all. Kings is one book. Chronicles is one book. Uh, so it's the first and seconds, but I, we're basically only covering three books. Uh, and this is the history, of course, of the monarchy. So we'll be looking at um, the history of the rise of David and the Davidic monarchy in Samuel. We'll be looking at the history of the Davidic monarchy after Solomon in the book of Kings. And then we'll fill in with some passages, look at some passages in Chronicles, and we'll look more specifically at the shape of Chronicles uh, in uh, the last uh, lecture tomorrow. Uh, but again, primarily looking at uh, Samuel and Kings. Uh, Before I go into that, I want to spend this first lecture setting the stage for the rise of the monarchy in Israel. And basically two things I want to do. First is to talk a little bit about hermeneutics, 
how we interpret the Bible, how we read the Bible. This is uh, something that uh, we spent a lot of time with at Theopolis. Uh, if you want a fuller introduction, my book, uh, Theopolitan Reading, is available. Uh, more in-depth, a kind of technical book, uh, Deep Exegesis, is a study of uh, hermeneutics, reading the Bible. But I want to give a, a few parameters, at least, so you can understand what I'm, what I'm doing and what, what, I think, what I think I'm going to find when I look at Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. So that would be the first thing I do. And the second thing I want to do is uh, set up the rise of the monarchy by looking at the kingship of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Before Israel has a king, Yahweh is their king. And one way to trace the history from Genesis through Judges, or Ruth, before the, before the monarchy comes on the scene, is to think about it as the revelation and development of the theme of Yahweh's monarchy, Yahweh as king. So we'll be looking at that and how that, how that prepares for the rise of the Davidic kingdom. So first of all, some hermeneutical notes. I've labeled this in your notes, spiritual reading. The S on spiritual is capitalized not just because it's the beginning of a phrase, but it's capitalized because I think spiritual reading has to do with reading in and with uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, we read by keeping, we read well by keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. We read well by depending on the Holy Spirit for illumination. The Holy Spirit has inspired the text of Scripture, and it's only the Holy Spirit that can bring that text to us and make it uh, light to us. It's only the Holy Spirit that can imprint that word in us so that, that word lives in us. It's not just an external word, but it becomes an internal word. So uh, spiritual reading means reading in and by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the basic premise of our understanding of Scripture and the basic premise of our understanding of interpretation is the, is the fact that God speaks. Uh, we worship a speaking God, a self-revealing God. Uh, and the God we worship is not just a God who happens to speak, Speaking is not just something that he adds to his character that he does on occasion, but we, re we learn uh, in the New Testament, right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, of course, uh, that uh, word is an attribute of God. Word is a person within the divine trinity. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. God didn't start speaking when he, when he spoke the world into existence. Uh, God has been speaking forever and ever. God is a conversation. The Father speaks the Word, the living Word, the eternal Word, by the power and breath of the Spirit. The Father is a speaking God. The Son as Word is the revelation of the Father. Now that's what John is getting at at the beginning of his Gospel, that that Word, which is the Word of creation, uh, is also the Word that became flesh and showed us the Father. We've, if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. And we have that correspondence between Jesus and the Father, because there's a correspondence between God and His Word. God is true to His Word. Uh, and when He speaks, eternally speaks His Word, that Word is truly a self-revelation. Even when that Word becomes flesh and lives a human life with all the complications of human life and all the weaknesses and frailties of human existence, even that word, when that Word becomes flesh, it's still a revelation of the Father because God the Father is true to His Word. And that Word comes to us in the power, of the power and breath of the Spirit. So God speaks eternally, and God, of course, speaks uh, the worlds into existence. Uh, Genesis 1, uh, that's, what, that's what John is reflecting on at the beginning of his gospel. Uh, God speaks light into existence at the beginning. He speaks, he says this, uh, he says, let there be a firmament. He makes a firmament, there is a firmament. 
He speaks to the ground and the ground has the power to bring forth uh, grasses yielding seeds and fruit trees yielding fruit with seed in the fruit. He speaks to the seas and the seas teem with uh, living things. He speaks to the land and the land produces animals. He speaks and makes and places the heavenly lights on day four. From beginning to end of the creation, we God, God says, that phrase is used 10 times in Genesis 1, uh, God speaks the world into existence. And so uh, we, could, we could spend our whole weekend just teasing out the implication of what it means to say the creation is the product of word. It means that creation is God's self-revelation. We have an eternal self-revelation in the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity. And then that second word is the agent by whom the Father brings the world into existence. You have the Word and the Spirit in Genesis 1. Within the first three verses, you have Word and Spirit operative, bringing the world into existence. Uh, and that means that uh, the, the, the world itself is a created self-revelation, a created self-expression of God. We can't escape God's self-revelation. Uh, Paul, Paul uh, describes this at the beginning of Romans. Uh, the... Uh, invisible things of God, His divine power, uh, His power and divine nature are clearly seen, being understood by, by what has been made. Uh, we try to suppress that. Paul goes on to say we try to hide it, we try to hide from it, we try to obscure it, uh, we try to we poke out our eyes so we can't see it, but we can't escape it. Uh, God is revealing Himself in everything that He's made. Everything that He created is intelligible because it's created by word. And it's not just intelligible in a general sense, but because it's created, created by the word of the God who speaks, every, everything in the creation is intelligible as revelation of God. So God is an eternal speaker. He speaks the world into existence. And then once he's spoken a world into existence, he keeps talking. Uh, we serve a talkative God, as uh, the Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen put it. I used to quote that as saying, we, serve, we, we worship a chatty God, but I found out that's not actually the word that, uh, that Jensen uses, although I think it's a perfectly fine word. People think that's, that's kind of uh, irreverent to say that God is chatty. Um, but he is talkative. Uh, he speaks to Adam in the garden. He speaks to Adam after, this, after sin. He speaks to Noah before the flood. He speaks to Abram and calls him out of Ur. He keeps speaking to Abram. He speaks to Isaac. He speaks to Jacob. He speaks, uh, speaks to uh, Moses. On and on and on, uh, ultimately he speaks in his son, having spoken in many ways, in many fragmentary ways in the Old Covenant. In the, in the last days, he spoke to us in his son. And he speaks his eternal word in human flesh. Uh, that's all the theological background for understanding the scriptures as the word of God. Our God is a speaking God. Uh, he is true to his word. He's true to his eternal word. He's true to the word that he's spoken as creation, and he's true to the words that he speaks, the human words that he speaks uh, in, uh, in, throughout the history of creation. When he speaks to human being, he speaks human, as you would expect. Uh, theologians call this accommodation. I think it's, it, accommodation, I think, tends to confuse things. I think it's best to say when God speaks to us, he speaks human. What else would he speak? He's not going to speak to us in a way we can't understand. He, speak, he spoke human language to Adam. Somehow Adam was created with the capacity to, to understand human language when God spoke to him. He's given a command. 
Uh, and he's created with the ability to speak because he does at the creation of Eve when Eve is presented to him. Uh, Adam and Eve both speak uh, in, the, in the judgment scene in Genesis 3. God speaks to us uh, and he speaks human. He speaks in a way that communicates with us and he can understand what we're saying back to him. Uh, saying that God speaks human also means that God uses normal human languages and normal human devices, linguistic and literary devices to speak. Uh, God speaks in sentences. God speaks with a certain syntax. Uh, God speaks in scripture. Uh, when he goes, gets down to writing, God does write. God doesn't just speak, but God writes. When he gets down to writing and committing his word to written form, uh, he uses uh, a whole range of genres, uh, the whole range of genres that we would expect any human writer to use. Uh, there's a lot of narrative in the Bible. Uh, there's a good bit of poetry, not only in the Psalms, but also in uh, the Song of Songs and large stretches of the prophets uh, in Hebrew are poetry. Um, I say that Revelation is, uh, the book of Revelation is a kind of poetic uh, apocalypse, a kind of poetic um, revelation uh, uh, unveiling to John. Uh, and, uh, uh, and he speaks in Proverbs, he speaks in, uh, through Paul and others in letters, uh, all, all kinds of different genres, but they're all, they're all normal human genres. And, uh, uh, and they're, uh, one thing that uh, is striking about them is that they're not the kind of speech, not the kind of language that we tend to find from theologians. Uh, theologians, when they talk about God, when they talk about what's in the Bible, will often raise the, raise the uh, discourse level up to something more abstract, more philosophical, uh, apparently more sophisticated. I don't think it's any more sophisticated. I think there are uses for that kind of upper register of discourse. Uh, but that's not the discourse that God has decided to speak in. Even, even the letters of Paul, uh, we think of the letters of Paul as being somewhat more like our theological textbooks, but they're not. They're pastoral letters. Uh, and if you try to match up how Paul's arg arguments are constructed with how arguments are constructed in a standard kind of theology, they don't match one-to-one. -one. Paul's, Paul's addressing pastoral concerns in various churches, uh, and the way that he moves in his arguments, move in the letters, don't, don't match our normal conception of how, how we should produce theological argument. We want to, what we want to do, this is a thump, thump, something we stress a lot at Theopolis, we want to follow the text the way it's written. We want to understand at, uh, God's words as he, as he spoke and wrote them to us. Uh, we want to understand accurately what God has written to us. We don't want to put wor words in God's mouth. And we also want to understand it fully. We don't want to miss anything. Uh, and that means that we're probing, probing the poetry of Scripture to see the different facets of what God has said. We're probing the narratives of Scripture to see the, the ways those narrative works, uh, narratives work, the way those narratives interact with one another, the way that they feed off of one another and echo one another, uh, the way that uh, not just what's being said in a narrative, but how it's being said and how the story is being told and how the text is being shaped. All those things are part of the way God speaks to us. We don't want to miss any of that. Okay? Uh, we, want to have it, we want to get it accurate. We, want, we, don't, want to, we don't want to uh, uh, 
see things that aren't there, but we also want to see things that are there, and we want to hear things or see things that might be hidden. Any good text, any good literary work, has hidden aspects to it. Uh, there, are, there are hidden connections. You read, uh, read a novel of uh, um, Charles Dickens or uh, Jane Austen or something, or, or a play of Shakespeare. Uh, there, there are hidden echoes and hidden structures that are going on. Lots of things that are not immediately on the surface, but the better you know a play, the better you know a novel, the more you can see how different pieces fit together. And we want to do the same with Scripture. That's what God is doing in the Bible. We want to understand the Scriptures in their depths, and uh, we want to understand the Scriptures accurately. And how do we do that? How do we receive the Word of God in a way that uh, achieves those two things, that uh, is both true and also full. Uh, and here on your notes is where I want to talk about models and mentors. We learn language at every level we learn it by imitation and by uh, instruction from teachers. You didn't learn to speak in isolation. You learned to speak because people were talking to you. Uh, and you began to pick up and echo things that they were saying saying to you. They say words to you, you say words back to them. Your first words are not words that you invent or found in, find in some lexicon. They're words that somebody has spoken to you, and so you can speak, speak back to them. Then as you grow in your linguistic ability, you might, depending on how uh, pedantic your parents are, if you start saying things that are ungrammatical at a young age, you might be corrected by pedantic parents, less and fewer. It's a, it's a, a pet peeve of mine to get those two things right. Uh, and so my, my kids have known the difference between less and fewer from a very young age because we started correcting them at a very young age. You got, you got teaching going on. So you, you learn to speak by being spoken to, and then you learn to speak well and grammatically by people correcting you and by people uh, by, by mentors or teachers that are teaching you how to, how to speak well. You learn to read the same way. Right? You, don't learn, you didn't learn to read in isolation. Some people do this. As, as I recall, I learned to read because um, my older brother stopped reading the comics to me. Uh, the, the afternoon paper would come, uh, and there was a comic named The Phantom. And he was kind of a superhero, and I wanted to read The Phantom every day, and my, my brother stopped reading to me. And so uh, I somehow figured out how to read that's my recollection. I don't remember anybody sitting down and teaching me to read. Uh, but of course, somebody had. Somebody had shown me letters, and I knew the, somehow I knew the letters. I hadn't picked those up on my own. Somehow knew they, how they fit together. Was probably just uh, um, had memorized certain words and was able to recognize them. But uh, we, we learned to read uh, by people teaching us to read, and we learned to read well when people teach us to read well. If you've taken literature classes, um, uh, some people have difficulty seeing um, how literary texts work uh, until somebody shows them how it's done. So you might say, you know, here's a poem. What does the poem mean? And you just want to repeat the poem. Actually, that's what poets do too. They just repeat the poem. Mr. Eliot, what does the wasteland mean? Well, it means April is the cruelest month, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's what poets do. That's uh, they. There's, there's no explanation of the poem that's better than the poem itself. 
but if we want to read with understanding, we do have to go beyond some beyond the surface of a text. We need to see how it's put together. We need to see how things are connected within the text. Uh, you know, April is the cruelest month is the first line of uh, T.S. Eliot's Wasteland. Um, that's got all kinds of, um, uh, that's, that's evocative in all kinds of ways. April as a cruel month. April is not usually the cruelest month. April is new life. April is springtime. April is the month when Chaucer's pilgrims go off on pilgrimage, uh, when everything's springing up uh, and uh, every, life is starting anew. But somehow for Eliot, that very, uh, that very uh, fullness of life that comes in April uh, comes with a kind of cruelty. So you can just repeat the line and say that the line means April is the cruelest month, but to feel what that means, means thinking about all kinds of other things. We learn to do that when people teach us how to do that. Uh, we learn to read literary texts well when people teach us how. We learn to read the biblical material well when somebody's modeling for us how to do it. When you find a, find a good teacher who can teach you the Bible and you learn to follow the, their reasoning about the text, uh, you learn to imitate them. You want to be like them and read the Bible like them and see what they see. And then if you have a kind of mentoring relationship with a, with a good Bible teacher, that Bible teacher is going to point to things and say, what do you think that means? Or did you notice that? Oh, you missed that. You got that wrong because look over here. Uh, you need somebody to do that. Uh, you, need, you need mentors and models in order to learn to teach well. Um, Jesus is the model teacher of Scripture. Uh, Jesus is the one whom we should imitate in the power of the Spirit. Uh, Luke 24, I won't time, take time to read all of it, uh, but a couple of times in Luke 24 we have Jesus uh, teaching people uh, what the Bible's about. Our pastor here, Rich Lusk, pointed out um, a year ago or so when he was uh, talking about uh, Easter that uh, Jesus rises from the dead in glory. Um, it's full of, full of the power of the Spirit. He can appear and disappear at will. He's got all these amazing powers. And what does he spend his time doing? Leading Bible studies. He goes right back to the text. After his resurrection, he goes back to telling people what the Bible's about. Um, comes out particularly in Luke, the story of the men on the road to Emmaus. Uh, great story. We could spend a lot of time with the story. I'll just point out a couple of things. Two disciples are leaving Jerusalem. They're not supposed to leave Jerusalem. They're jumping the gun. Eventually, the disciples will leave Jerusalem, but it's not supposed to happen yet. They're supposed to go to Jerusalem and they're supposed to wait for the coming of the Spirit. Eventually, they'll be scattered, and eventually they'll go to the ends of the earth, but for now, they're supposed to stay in Jerusalem. These guys are leaving. Uh, they're abandoning their association with the apostles. They're abandoning the mission of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus know everything uh, they know all about Jesus. He's a prophet, mighty in word and deed. It's true. They know Jesus went to the cross, that he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. That's true. They know the resurrection. They know the whole gospel story. And Jesus is right next to them, and they don't recognize him. And they begin to recognize him. Their hearts burn within them. They begin to recognize him when Jesus leads them in a Bible study and says, verses 26 and 27 of Luke 24, uh, well, actually, I want to get the rebuke, verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The whole scriptures, the whole of the Bible is the story of Jesus. Certainly the New Testament is, we know that, but Jesus is talking about the Old Testament scriptures. The scriptures from Genesis through the end are about Jesus. And when he teaches them that, their hearts burn within them. They still don't recognize him. Until they sit at table, Jesus breaks, gives thanks, breaks bread, and in the breaking of bread, their eyes are opened, and they see and recognize Jesus. And then he's gone from them. Then, of course, the important thing is, an important thing is that they go back to Jerusalem and they become witnesses of the resurrection. They, they are reincorporated into the mission of the church, which they had left behind. Um, but the, this is, a, this is a, great, a great passage on the necessity of word and bread. You, want, you need both of them together uh, to recognize Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is present. Jesus is there. If you want to recognize Jesus, you need the word and you need the bread. Okay. Uh, but I want to focus on these, uh, what uh, Jesus says here in verses 26 and 27. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and to enter into his glory, beginning with Moses with all the prophets? He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then verses 46 and 47, the same chapter. Now he's with the eleven. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. This is what is written. Uh, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And he's just said in verse 44, he's been teaching them uh, from the law, from the prophets, and the Psalms. Uh, and what that is about, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, it's all about the sufferings of Christ, the glory of the Christ, and the proclamation of forgiveness of sins to the Gentiles. That's what the whole Bible is about. Uh, we're going to find that as we go through Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Uh, I've titled this course, The Death and Resurrection of David, because the death and resurrection of David and the Davidic house is the story of the monarchy. That's what it, that is what it's all about. The big, the big structures, the big, the, big, uh, the big sweep of history is all about the death and resurrection of David, as we'll see. Um, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples that here uh, on, uh, on the road to Emmaus. He's teaching his disciples, again, uh, the 11 together. Um, that's the model reader. We wanna, if we want to read the Bible well and know what we're looking for, we have to be following Jesus that should be obvious. We want to follow Jesus. We're disciples. So we want to follow Jesus in his hermeneutics, in his reading of the Bible, as we do in everything else. And we want to uh, find mentors and models who themselves are following Jesus. Luke and Acts, you know, go together, both written by Luke, two-volume work, uh, integrate in all kinds of ways. One of the ways they're integrated is by the fact that this instruction at the end of Luke becomes the basic assumption of apostolic teaching. Uh, the Spirit comes. And what does Peter say in his Pentecost sermon? Among other things, he cites Psalm 16. Psalm 16, you did not allow your Holy One to see decay, to see corruption. Who's that about? Peter knows. It can't be about David, because David died and his grave is with us, and he did see corruption. That psalm is not about David. It's about David's greater son. So he learned the lesson that Jesus gave here in Luke 24. 
Um, Paul, Paul's not here. Peter was here uh, on the day of the resurrection. Paul wasn't, but that's how Paul teaches. I just recently preached on uh, um, Acts, Acts 13, uh, for Paul's first, uh, the beginning of Paul's first missionary expedition. And it's his first sermon in the book of Acts. It's his longest sermon in the book of Acts. Uh, and the first eight verses or so are a quick summary of the Old Testament uh, leading to David. Uh, so he's summarizing the law and the histories of the Old Testament. He's got the book of Judges in there. He mentions, mentions Saul, his namesake, uh, and takes it to David. And then uh, within that, he um, uh, following that, he cites some Psalms, he cites some prophets. Uh, he's doing exactly what Jesus taught his disciples to do. Somewhere along the line, Paul picked up this lesson. Paul knows uh, that uh, the scriptures are about the sufferings of the Christ, the glory of the Christ, and the proclamation of forgiveness of sins to the Gentiles. That is the apostolic preaching. That's the apostolic hermeneutic. Uh, and that is, um, that's the way we want to learn to read the Bible. Uh, that's what we're looking for. We're looking, at, we're looking at all kinds of other things. We're looking at different literary devices. We're looking at uh, structures. We're going to be looking at these things throughout the weekend. But at the center of it all is what Jesus taught his disciples. Uh, we want to follow Jesus in our reading of Scripture, and we want to follow disciples of Jesus in the way that we understand, uh, in the way that we read. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.